This morning we're starting a new series of studies in John. For any who are in Basilea, I apologize if some of this information you've already had. Um, some of it will be repeated, some of it will be fresh as we go through this series. And the series is going to take us quite a lot of weeks because there's 20 chapters in John and we're not necessarily going to do a whole chapter per week because it's so rich in, in, um, in uh, uh, detail. But it's going to take us probably through most of the rest of the year and we'll grapple with this book and come to a, try to come to an understanding of it. John is a wonderful gospel. I have... Well, I love all the Gospels, actually, with different ways. Um, they all speak to me in different ways. But John is different. It's, it's mysterious. It's full of, of different ways of looking at things. It brings a whole different slant to us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it's different from the other Gospels as well, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In, in John, there is no moral teaching. There are no parables, and the whole narrative form is completely different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we're going to learn some of this as we go along. But also the purpose of the book is distinctly different. And for the purpose of the book, we're going to turn, first of all, to John and chapter 20. Turn with me to there. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. John writes, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us in those verses very clearly why he's writing the book, why he's put down all the things that are in it, why he's put these signs, as he calls them, and that word is significant, as we will find out. But he tells us that he's doing so to present Jesus as divine, as the Son of God. And also to present him as the Messiah, the one who was the promise of all Israel. And in doing that, his desire is that you and I might perceive who he is and might believe in him and have life as a result. That's John's entire intention, that we might grasp really who Jesus is. What he came to do, and in perceiving that, we might believe in him and therefore get life into ourselves. These are the two truths that he wants you to grasp about Jesus. That he's the anointed one of God, promised from long ages past, and that he's come into the world to bring salvation. And that he is the son of God, the son of Yahweh himself. Thus, John seeks to demonstrate that all Jesus' works, his words, his actions, his declarations, they're all part of God's great plan of redemption through which he would bring the world back to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, believes is an important word in John, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I say beliefs. It is an important word because for John, believing doesn't just mean intellectual assent. It means believing and putting it into action. And so John's whole passion is that we get hold of who Jesus is and allow that to transform and change our lives and to bring life from the inside out. Life eternal that starts now. 
realized eschatology for your assignment. So John seeks to demonstrate all that Jesus is. And the pivotal act for the individual is to believe in Jesus as the Son of God in human form and thereby to believe in him as the only source of salvation. Eternal life or eternal judgment are based on that belief alone, that you get it and that you believe it and that you live it. The Gospel of John is not just a narrative. Unlike the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's full of symbolism. And if you read it just literally, like you would read Matthew, Mark or Luke, you'll end up feeling shortchanged because every detail, including the otherwise apparently insignificant descriptive details, numbers, dualisms, ambiguous statements and peculiar stylistic features are all significant. There's things like truth and falsehood, which are contrasted, light and darkness, love and hate, above and below. All these dualisms permeate John so that no incident or statement can be interpreted apart from these categories. There are seven signs. There are seven I am sayings. There are six stone water pots. There are three denials and three restorations of Peter. There are 153 fish. Quite what the significance of that one is, we might come to later on. But these numbers all have meaning. And Jesus uses words throughout the book of John with double meanings to reveal his message to the discerning listener. References to water, wine, bread, flesh, blood. They're all double meanings. You take it at one level, but then you take it at another level. And we're going to unwrap all of some of that, as much of that as we can in the time that we have over these weeks. Even the deliberate and persistent anonymity of the beloved disciple itself has a symbolic function. All the actions and words of Jesus point to something deeper so that the reader is drawn into the mystery that lies behind the words. This is not a skim read. This is a delve deep into the truths of all that we believe and all that Jesus is. So we're going to start on that level with John chapter 1. If you turn with me. And the first 18 verses. Some of the most profound words in the whole of scripture. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it or extinguish it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He is not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld, we saw, we looked upon his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he, was he, of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we've all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I'll sit down now. (laughs) Wow. John begins this gospel not by launching into the ministry of Jesus as Mark does. Not by giving us stories of the birth as Matthew and Luke do. Rather, John begins at the beginning of time with God and Jesus coexisting and being party together in the creation of everything else. And in doing so, he uses this word, Logos, to describe Jesus. In the beginning was the Logos, the word. And this word is unique to John's gospel and to John chapter 1, verse 11. Just keep your finger in John 1 and turn over to John chapter 1 a moment. Sorry, 1 John John, chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word, the logos of life. John uses the same word to begin his letter as he uses to describe his gospel. And he's saying that, that this Jesus whom we saw, whom we talked with, whom we traveled on the roads with, who got dusty, who drank water, who, who uh, sat down at feasts, who ate. This Jesus is the divine word of God who was right there at the beginning of creation, who was there when before all things were made, who was there in eternity with the Father. We've seen him. And this word isn't isn't an uncommon word in Greek, just as our English translation of it, word or expression, is not unusual. But it's also laden with significance because it infers the self-revelation of God to humanity. In other words, the way God wants to reveal himself to humanity, to us, make himself known, is ultimately in Jesus. And by describing Jesus as the Logos, Jesus is telling us that, John is telling us that Jesus is not just the creative agent of God. As in Genesis 1, and God said, God said, let there be light. The speaking word of God that brought forth creation. Jesus is more than just the speaking word of God. He is the expression of God. He is the way God expresses himself and demonstrates himself and makes himself known. If you want to know what God is like, John is saying, look at Jesus. If you want to know what I'm thinking or feeling, I use words to tell you. In the same way, Jesus is the expression of the Father. He is the means through which we find out what the Father is like. He's the way in which the Father has made himself known to humanity. He is the means through which the Father has brought his redemptive will to bear on the world. And he himself declared he's the only way to the Father. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. And so before his incarnation, before he was born in a stable in Bethlehem, before he was placed in the womb of Mary, he was pre-existent and he was the agent of creation. And to offer the ultimate revelation of God's glory, to demonstrate what God's glory was like, the Logos, the Word, this one who was existing with the Father before all eternity, became flesh. He took on our frail flesh and lived amongst us. He lived with people for a while as Jesus, the human embodiment of God. And even now, God sustains creation through light and life of the Logos, it says in one four. In other words, we only have life and light in the world because Jesus still continues to maintain it. From this concept, we can discern the following about the Logos, Jesus. He's pre-existent. He existed before everything else was created. He's the agent of creation. All things came through into being through him. and Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so the redeemer of life is also the creator of life in John's gospel. The one who came to bring new eternal life is also the source of all life. And the one through whom you and I find our life because our life ultimately comes from God the Father. He's the sustainer of creation. In him was life. Life and light continue to come to creation through the Logos. He is God. He was in the beginning with God. And was God. The Logos is presented as both associated with God and as God himself. He is the one who brings true revelation to everyone. The true light which came into the world enlightens every man. But not every one recognizes that. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Imagine that. The creator of the world comes in and lives amongst us. And we didn't even recognize him. Most people didn't perceive who he really was. And there he was, the one who was giving life and sustaining life and bringing light and bringing revelation and bringing hope and bringing joy and bringing everything. And they didn't recognize him. And he came unto his own and his own didn't receive him. Even his own family didn't get it. His own nation didn't perceive except a few. Wow. Acceptance of him, however, results in us becoming children of God, born of God, born again, and part of God's purposes for this world. And to testify to all of this, John calls on John the Baptist as a witness. He uses John's testimony to independently corroborate who Jesus is. That John the Baptist himself came into the world to testify and say, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is the one, this is God in human form who's coming amongst you right now. Get ready, get prepared, repent. And the climax of all of this, all of this thought that John's been sharing, is in verse 14. 
And the word, that eternal word, that one who had existed, that one who created everything, the one who sustained everything, became flesh, became a man, and lived amongst us. And he says, we saw his glory. The glory of God was revealed as we looked upon Jesus. That Shekinah glory which had led the people through the wilderness. That glory that had been seen shining in the tabernacle by the priests once a year. That glory that had led them and protected them as they crossed the Red Sea. Every moment of glory you read in the Old Testament is suddenly there amongst them in the person of Jesus. We looked on that glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. It's suddenly there. It's like Jesus' body, even though his body was shielding it. They could still see the glory of God shining out through him in what he said and the way he acted and just in his person. Full of grace and truth. In the Logos becoming flesh, humanity was able to see God in on earth. Up until that point, he says in verse 18, only the Son had seen the Father. But now we could all see God. Everybody who looked on Jesus could see what God was like. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. And in this verse, there is something of John's own wonder at seeing the glory of God in Jesus. We beheld his glory. And in 1 John, again, that verse we read. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands. John is relating something real. He's saying the glory of God was amongst us. We saw it. We looked at it. We touched it. We heard it. It was Jesus. And you see something of the wonder of God, of John's, John's own wonder as he's relating all his, his time with Jesus and his perception of who Jesus was. So the divinity of Christ, the fact that he is God, is boldly affirmed. And the human embodiment of God explicitly presented in this passage. The Logos did not merely descend upon Jesus and enter him, as some have suggested. But the Logos of God, the word, the expression of God, became the human nature that he bore. And the life of Jesus is the history of God himself on the earth. I'll say that again. The life of Jesus is the history of God himself upon the earth. Imagine that. And John describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. And these two go hand in hand. God is not just grace, although he is full of grace. He's also truth. And truth demands a decision from us. In order to receive the grace of God through Jesus, we have to accept the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We also have to accept the truth of our own sinfulness and inability to bring salvation for ourselves. Grace and truth go hand in hand. By that means, he says in verse 16, if we do that, if we believe, if we accept, if we put our trust, we will receive grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, grace upon grace. It's poured out. 
it's poured out. But it's by believing and trusting. In verse 14, the word dwelt amongst us. Literally, the literal translation of that is the word tabernacled amongst us. And some modern translations have put it like this. God pitched his tent amongst us. But I don't think that's saying enough. It's a picture of the tabernacle itself in the wilderness, which was the place where people encountered God. And in the midst of the tabernacle, as I've already said, was the glory of God shining. And that's the picture John is getting across to us, that Jesus was like that tabernacle. And if people wanted to encounter God, they would have to come up to the tabernacle and make an offering. And the same way, if we come up to encounter God, we have to come to Jesus and offer ourselves to him. And then we see the glory. And this, of course, refers back to the Exodus. Just as the glory of God was manifested in the tabernacle, so the glory of God is revealed in the Logos, in Jesus. And God actually came and resided on earth for a time as the Logos, passing through to lead the way to a second Exodus. And we'll come back to this this notion of the Exodus throughout the book because the the Exodus is is a key component to understanding the book of John. That Jesus is the new Moses, bringing a new exodus to lead people out of captivity and slavery to sin and into the freedom that God has for them as children of God. And that is repeated time and time again. It's repeated in the signs, it's repeated in the miracles, it's repeated in the teachings, it's repeated throughout the book. And the glory of Jesus is a recurrent theme in this gospel. Beginning with 1.14, we beheld his glory. It's manifested in the signs, the signs in chapter 2, verse 14. The first sign of turning water into wine is the first sign that reveals his glory, which we'll come to in a few weeks. There's others as well, other mentions. In John 5, when affirming the witnesses for him, Jesus declares that his glory is not from men. In John 8.50, Jesus states that he is glorified by the Father. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he refers to the heavenly glory that he left behind in order to glorify the Father on earth. And he also imparts his glory to the disciples so that ultimately they might see his glory with the Father in heaven. Glory is a central theme, but it's a glory we receive through acknowledging who Jesus is. And then in verse 18, no one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is, John is saying, Jesus bring came to reveal who God is. And that explains all of John's theology in this letter. The letters of John present the implications of the Logos for our community together. But in the gospel, it's the revelation of who Jesus is. Then John finally presents the contrast with Moses in verse 17. Just as he also contrasts grace and truth with the law, and in doing so, he affirms that there's a better way of knowing God that has now come amongst us who receive of his grace and truth than just by abiding in the law. As we read through this gospel, it's easy to get caught up in the wonder of the language, of the concepts that fall one after another out of its pages. However, John's purpose is not just to blow our minds, 
but so that we might appreciate more fully who Jesus is. He's not just a man, but he's God in the flesh. His sacrifice was the death of God himself on our behalf. When we look at the Passion Play a week on Friday, think about that. It's not just a man dying. It's God dying for us. It was our sin that put him there, but he chose willingly and freely to go to the cross to bring us back into relationship with himself. Also, if you get an opportunity in the next week, read the rest of chapter 1, verse 19 to 50, because next week we'll draw out some of the titles that John ascribes to Jesus in those verses, all of which are full of significance and meaning for Holy Week, which we will enter next Sunday. And we'll, then we'll also consider the significance of Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel. We'll unlock that one as well. Well, I hope that's given you a taster for this book. I've either encouraged you or bored you this morning, one or the other. Um, and I don't mind um, which you want to affirm, but I hope that as we go through this journey, we can explore something more, something deeper, something richer of what is in here that tells us about our Savior, our, our Lord, and our King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your beloved Son, the one who was with you before eternity, the one who came to unlock for us the door back into relationship with you, the one who came to reveal all that you are, the one who is demonstrated by his love, by his life, by his passion, by his exaltation, your great plan of redemption for each one of us. And I just pray, Lord God, that over these weeks we may fully enter enter in more fully into what you have done and all that you are. Pray your blessing upon us this week in Jesus' name. Amen.